1: Today on the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. On Thanksgiving weekend, we'll hear from Salem host Dennis
2: Prager. You remove God uh, and eventually the American experiment will fail. He reads from George Washington. A day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God. And from Abraham Lincoln. No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. You hear that? They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God. And addresses all Americans. You can express thanks that our founders were God-believers, even if you are not. Because it was that belief that gave rise to the freedoms and belief in human rights that you now enjoy.
1: I'm Hugh Hewitt. Great to be with you. Catch my program each weekday morning live, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time and on demand, 24-7. Learn more at HughHewitt.com. And follow me on Twitter at Hugh Hewitt. And follow this program as well at Town Hall Review. In October of 1789, President George Washington gave us the first Thanksgiving proclamation. Few presidents would be so bold with their faith in public today. In a moment, Salem host Dennis Prager will go through that proclamation, The vicissitudes of American cultural and political life today, not to mention the dynamic period of history we're living through on the world stage, makes the Thanksgiving holiday all the more sweet. Thanksgiving gives each of us an opportunity to step away from the freneticism of our day-to-day lives and online media. Instead, be grateful to God for his bounties, for family, for friends, and for loved ones. My good friend and colleague,
2: Dennis Prager, examines this very important holiday. Thanksgiving should be... Easily, the most easily, most widely celebrated American holiday. If you don't celebrate Thanksgiving, there's something wrong with you. I'm so, I know, ah, are you making a judgment? Yes, I am making a judgment. I, I'm very open with you. Now, if you can't celebrate Thanksgiving because of some form of incapacitation or there is nobody to celebrate it with for whatever reason, that you're exempted. I'm talking about those of you who can celebrate the day and for reasons that I can't even begin to figure out are not. There can't be a religious objection to it. There can't be. What religion does not ask you to be grateful? Right? So it can't there can't be a religious objection. There can't be a secular objection. What secular argument would there be? Not to have a day to gather with people. It doesn't have to be family. It doesn't have to be friends. It could be people. It's a big deal, Thanksgiving. I am going to analyze for you a George Washington's proclamation, his Thanksgiving proclamation, and you will see what we should be as a nation. Just using... Lincoln proclamation of Thanksgiving, Washington's, but Washington obviously comes first and sets the idea out that America should step back one day. That's why I'm very annoyed at those retail operations that will not honor the holiday. Look, I've, I've said this on many occasions, it's not a political show today, although who knows what will happen, but... Remember, big business frequently does not have conservative values. so It a, it's a, should never be confused with values. That doesn't mean we don't need big business. One has nothing to do with the other. I don't react emotionally to the fact that I just stated to you, but it is still worth noting. Today should be truly a day wherein there is quiet except for those who are expressing their thanks. And there is this great existential, philosophical, cosmological, I was going to say theological, but then that would be redundant given the question. But there is the question is, if you don't, if you're not saying thanks to God... Who, to whom are you saying thanks? And I have an answer. I, I While it's set up to say thanks to God, it is. Because God is central to the American experiment. You remove God, uh, and eventually the American experiment will fail. And we will be Sweden West. Right Now, there are many people who want to be Sweden West. So what I just said hardly scares them indeed it delights them the prospect of being sweden west Schweria west uh, is a very appealing one not to not to yours truly however but it is an interesting question nevertheless to whom do you give thanks if you don't believe in god now i do obviously so i give thanks to god now i have i have one answer that will surprise you. If you are an atheist or an agnostic, you should still say thanks to God, to which you will say, isn't that hypocritical? Are you aren't you asking me to do something I cannot do? No. I believe that given the overwhelming significance of God to America, the indispensability of God to morality, If there is no God, there is no good and evil. There are only opinions about good and evil. You can act and should act as if there is a God. Tell me here, I'll give you an example. I will give you a perfect, I think a perfect analogy. In the vast majority of marriages, there are days when you are less in love or not in love with your spouse. But you still, if you are a good spouse and a mature and wise person, you will still act loving to your spouse. Is that hypocrisy? Well, I don't really feel it today. Doesn't matter. It's still worth doing because behavior induces feeling. You are you act loving on days where you don't feel that much in love. With a spouse, or with a child for that matter, you know, you get sick of a kid whom you love, but do you stop loving the child? The fact that you don't feel something doesn't mean you don't act in a certain way. But let's say you can't. You are so absolutely convinced, which is a bit odd to me, there cannot be a God. It's just impossible. So you still have a Thanksgiving and you are just thankful. It is possible to be grateful without an object of your gratitude. All right? It is possible. It's and it's just it's just as beautiful to be grateful even if you don't have an object to receive your gratitude. And it's still worth expressing. It's a parent's duty to they provide room and board and many other things to a child but a child who is not grateful to a parent for doing so is not a good not a good person the purpose of gratitude is not because god then sits back in heaven and thinks oh god what a great day these americans are thanking me it's for us it's, it's it we need to be grateful he doesn't need our gratitude God's overwhelming demands in the Bible are that we treat our fellow human being decently. God is not preoccupied with how we treat him. He's God. It's, if he's God, it, it's, it, I don't think it matters to him that much. So uh, I, I, I believe that that answers it. The purpose of gratitude is not, in the safe case of gratitude to God, the purpose That the founders of Thanksgiving in this country, Washington, and then redone in the more modern era, so to speak, or the later era by Abraham Lincoln, was not for God's sake. It's for our sake. And I mean that sincerely. I mean, this this is elementary stuff, that the purpose of expressing gratitude is to in this instance, is to sharpen our character and is to make a better nation. I mean, even if you are an atheist, do you not agree that America is would be a better nation if all Americans today did, in fact, say some form of thank you to God for what they have? If nothing else, for this country? I don't think that that's debatable, that it would be a better society if people did that. It was George Washington who first set up Thanksgiving, not God. That's that's the point. And he begins to could segue into what he said. 1789, October 3rd, proclamation by the President of the United States. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. Notice, all nations. And providence is an interesting term. It generally means divine overseeing of human affairs in some way. So it is the duty. It's the duty of all nations, not just Americans, all nations. And he's saying Almighty God. And if if this Almighty God, you worship through a different religion than Washington, he was okay with that. But he's not okay with not acknowledging Almighty God. The founders were ethical monotheists. Not deists. Some were devout Christians, of course. But some were not devout Christians. Christianity was the way in which they expressed their ethical monotheism. Something I have long believed should be the the ideal to be spread to the world. So it is the duty of all nations, not just Americans, to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. Coming up. We were founded to be a
3: God-centered nation, my friends.
1: More from Dennis when the Town Hall Review returns in a moment.
3: Grounded in our distinctive Great Books curriculum, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy prepares students for exciting careers in politics who understand the relevance of America's founding principles to today's policy challenges. From our Southern California campus, we've sent over a thousand alumni across America and around the world. The application period for fall 2022 classes has begun. Find out more at pepperdine.edu/spp. That's pepperdine.edu/spp.
1: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Two of our great presidents, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, gave powerful, historical Thanksgiving proclamations, both recognized the need to appeal to and be grateful for a power higher than ourselves. Here's more from Dennis Prager. We'll pick up with him reading from Washington's proclamation.
2: A day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God especially by affording them an opportunity peaceably to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. I wonder how many of you can, with good conscience and feel secure that your guests will be pleased, or at least not displeased, if you read the first sentence of George Washington's proclamation, how would, they, how would they react? It would be a good, a good conversation, which incidentally would be reason enough to do it. Because there should be conversation about what Thanksgiving means on Thanksgiving. There should be conversation about what Memorial Day means on Memorial Day. But you have a particularly good opportunity on Thanksgiving since most people are either going somewhere or having people come to them. I was discussing the question of who do you say thanks to on this day if you don't believe in God? And I say it's still worth saying it. Unless you feel you are completely rupturing your entire belief system and you're being a phony, I don't think you're a phony. You can say, look, God is central to the American experiment. That I don't happen to believe in God is my problem. And that's an honorable way of looking at it. But it doesn't mean it's ignored. It would be... I, I, here's a, a fairly good, not perfect metaphor. There are parents who give their children classical music lessons who, that is the parents, have zero interest in Mozart, Beethoven, Bach. Zero. Zero but they know it's good they know it's a very good thing for a child to be taught the greatest music ever written so th- it's a somewhat narcissistic view well i don't believe in god therefore why would i take the, the proclamations of lincoln and washington seriously that you're not the issue the nation is the issue the nation gives thanksgiving as a member of the American nation, you can give thanksgiving to a God that you may not personally affirm. Now, if, if you can't, you can, right? I'm not going uh, to torture you into doing so. But I will, uh, I will nudge you. That's correct. And you can express thanks that our founders were God believers, even if you're not because it was that belief that gave rise to the freedoms and belief in human rights that you now enjoy.
1: The Thanksgiving Day proclamation of George Washington is, of course, the one with which most Americans are familiar. It has the greatest amount of prominence. But the president who was a painter with words, a man particularly gifted in the written and spoken word, is, of course, Abraham Lincoln. Let's pick up with Dennis.
2: I read to you the very powerful Proclamation of George Washington. Here is the one of Abraham Lincoln in 1863 for a national day of Thanksgiving. By the President of the United States of America, Proclamation, the year that is drawing toward its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften even the heart which is habitually insensible to the ever-watchful providence of Almighty God. In the midst of a civil war of unequaled magnitude and severity, which has sometimes seemed to foreign states to invite and to provoke their aggression— Peace has been preserved with all nations, order has been maintained, the laws have been respected and obeyed, and harmony has prevailed everywhere except in the theater of military conflict, while that theater has been greatly contracted by the advancing armies and navies of the Union. Needful diversions of wealth and of strength from the fields of peaceful industry to the national defense have not arrested the plow, the shuttle, or the ship. The axe has enlarged the borders of our settlements, and the mines, as well of iron and coal as of the precious metals, have yielded even more abundantly than heretofore. Population has steadily increased, notwithstanding the waste that has been made in the camp, the siege, and the battlefield And the country rejoicing in the consciousness of augmented strength and vigor is permitted to expect continuance of years with large increase of freedom. No human counsel hath devised nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. You hear that? They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. It has seemed to me fit and proper that they should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States, and all the, also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands, to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. And I recommend to them that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to him for such singular deliverances and blessings, they do also with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience commend to his tender care all those who have become widows, orphans, mourners or sufferers in the lamentable civil strife in which we are unavoidably engaged and fervently implore the interposition of the almighty hand to heal the wounds of the nation and to restore it as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace, harmony, tranquility and union. In testimony whereof I have hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed. Done at the city of Washington this third day of October in the year of our Lord, 1,863. And of the independence of the United States, the 88th. By the President, Abraham Lincoln.
1: Coming up. The climate cult, the energy crisis, and the fight for our energy future.
4: And they've restricted fossil fuel investment, production, and transportation on the lie that these unreliable renewables would replace them, and it's failed. And so now we're short of fossil fuels, and we have a global energy crisis.
1: When the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. Stay with us.
0: Hey, everybody. Charlie Kirk here. We've been working very hard on an amazing new docuseries called Border Battle. It chronicles the horrifying conditions on America's southern border. What you are going to see in border battle will blow your mind. It's amazing. First-hand interviews, incredible commentary, straight up on the front lines. We've worked very hard on this from Turning Point USA, and we are exposing the border crisis. Available exclusively on SalemNow.com. Produced by Turning Point USA. Available at SalemNow.com.
1: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. In the later years of President Donald Trump's term, he and his entire administration boasted, rightly, of America's hard-fought-for and won energy independence. The average gas price was $2.17 a gallon. All of that, our energy independence, the reasonable prices at the pump, it was willfully relinquished by President Biden. And now he and his team, the Biden team, do not want to turn back. Like President Biden's climate czar, former Secretary of State John Kerry, made it clear as gas prices have continued to soar. President Biden
0: has made a very significant commitment for the United States to be, first of all, power sector carbon-free by
1: 2035. I've called it a climate cult. Alex Epstein is pushing back against this movement which he sees as increasingly religious. He's the author of Fossil Future. Why global human flourishing requires more oil, coal and natural gas, not less. He was a guest of my friend Dennis Prager.
2: But I just read a report in, in a in a left-wing source that we c- it, it's it's going to be so long before we can actually transition to what is called a green energy world. Are you familiar with this latest report of saying that?
4: Well you're seeing different people. So you know there was a big UN person recently who had said something to that effect. Um but what's what's basically happened is there's been this mythology. There's sort of two two ideas behind we should rapidly eliminate fossil fuels. One is they're causing this climate catastrophe that will become an apocalypse Uh, Number two is that they're rapidly replaceable by so-called renewables, mainly solar and wind. And what we've seen is all these countries have invested huge amounts in these renewables. They've given them huge favoritism, and they've restricted fossil fuel investment, production, and transportation on the lie that these unreliable renewables would replace them, and it's failed. And so now we're short of fossil fuels, and we have a global energy crisis. And so the idea that, oh, now it's going to work to rapidly replace them is even— delusional people are stopping. are not as deluded anymore.
2: Really? Uh that's happy to hear. Uh when GM announced I mean, some,
4: some, some of them some of them are not as delusional. Right. okay, Carrey, that, yes.
2: Joe Biden. Okay. Let's, yes, let's no no, I, that's correct. I, I I thank you for modifying it. GM announced that by 2030 it will not be producing anything except electric cars. A, do you believe that's true? B, why are they doing it?
4: I doubt it's true. I mean, of course, Tesla only produces battery cars, so it's possible to be such a manufacturer. I mean, I think the basic thing that people don't get is that there's no scalable way to replace gasoline cars with EVs, and so you can have some minority of people doing it, but if everyone tries to do it, you're going to run into massive shortages of all the raw materials. We're already having skyrocketing lithium prices at a tiny scale of EVs. So why are they doing this? I think a combination of status trying to anticipate future government uh, mandates. And um, I think they probably haven't thought through the scalability issues. I, I, I doubt Mary Barra has fully, I think that's who runs GM, uh, has fully thought through these issues.
2: What does is a scalability issue mean?
4: So scalability issue means how do you produce something at a given price or a lower price on a much larger scale? And one thing that all of these green things have in common is they involve many multiples times more basic elements than we're using today. So lithium is an example where people are talking about we need 100, 1,000 times more lithium. We never have that kind of scaling and keeping the cost low. And we're already seeing with a modest amount of scaling that the cost is going sky high. So whenever you impose a very artificial crash timetable on the market, you get these drastic price increases, which these people are not factoring in.
2: So I'm going to ask you another question related to the electric car. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it might be just a very simplistic, not just simple question, but I don't care. I I don't know the answer, so I'm asking you. Since we're already experiencing, you and I both live in California, we're already experiencing brownouts almost every summer, where simply the electricity dies for a certain number of hours in, in one of the most advanced democracies in the history of the world and rich and one of the richest and this is happening as well in germany so where is all the electricity going to come from to power all these cars
4: It's unfortunately not a dumb question or a naive question. It's a question that people haven't really thought through. And one of my big points in fossil future is this idea that we're gonna rapidly replace fossil fuels is not a really thought through idea by people with a real plan. Otherwise they would just compete on the market and perform. It's by people with a deep hostility toward energy, not just fossil fuels, but also nuclear and hydro, who are just looking for a rationalization. So they say, yeah, okay, we'll build solar and wind. Don't worry about us getting rid of fossil fuels. Don't worry about shutting down the pipeline. Don't worry about banning leasing on federal lands because we have this magical solution. And then you look at the details and it's like, you haven't thought this through at all because you're already making electricity more expensive, more scarce, less reliable. Coming up. It's a hostility toward all forms of energy.
1: More Alex Epstein when the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment.
3: As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy enters our 25th anniversary year, We've remained committed to a single truth of world history, that ideas have consequences. To understand these ideas and their impact on today's politics, and to test them quantitatively, requires the unique curriculum we offer on our Malibu, California campus. Apply now for fall classes at pepperdine.edu. That's pepperdine.edu.
1: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Americans are coming to grips with the fact that the environmental left, the climate cult, as I've called it, is not really about a forward-looking plan to help humanity prosper in a future without fossil fuels. How do you know? Well, they never talk about nuclear power, for example. That's part of their cannot-do list as well. In fact, with control of both chambers of Congress and the presidency as well, the environmental elites in today's Democratic Party have had an opportunity to let their agenda play out. And humanity has not been helped. Let's pick up on Dennis's conversation with Alex Epstein, author of Fossil Future, where he argues that the environmental movement really has an anti-human aspect to
2: it. Why do you argue that? I know that's a big theme of yours, so elaborate.
4: So the the easy thing to think is that the anti-fossil fuel movement is just really focused on CO2 emissions, and they're just so concerned that our rising CO2 levels that we've caused by our CO2 emissions from fossil fuels, that that's making the world a bad place. But we see, wait a second, they also oppose nuclear, which is the most promising and proven alternative to fossil fuels. They oppose hydro, which is the next one after that. And then with solar, wind and batteries, they oppose mining, which needs to be scaled up massively. And they oppose uh, massive amounts of development, which are needed for transmission lines and for building the things. And so what you see is the common denominator in this anti-fossil fuel movement is not a concern about fossil fuels, it's a hostility toward all forms of energy because all forms of energy involve impacting nature. And, And the core thing I say about this in fossil futures, the goal that's animating the green movement and in diluted form much of the population is not advancing human flourishing on earth, but eliminating human impact on Earth. But the deep hostility toward human life,
2: That's new. this is
4: something you see emerging. Yeah, I mean, you see it with Rousseau. You see it with a lot of the people who have resentment over the successes of industrialization. I think there's a lot of envy there. And a lot of people like the idea that human impact is bad because even All though right. it makes them bad, it makes us worse.
2: Alex Epstein knows a tremendous amount, but he understands a tremendous amount. The animating impulse, you've really explained it well, is is the opposite of human flourishing. It's like between the contest of nature and humans, they're rooting for nature. And now you have, by the way, it's very interesting. You're the founder of the Center for Industrial Progress, but your project is the Human Flourishing Project, correct?
4: It's a podcast of mine.
2: And what is the name of the podcast?
4: It's called The Human Flourishing Project. And Uh, and the basic idea is human flourishing is the theme of my work on energy, but I like studying it in other areas. So I have a podcast where I discuss it in other areas.
2: Give me an example of another area.
4: Well, a big area that I focus on is actually our creative and productive life. I'm a big fan of what I call relaxed productivity, which is the idea that we should produce tremendous amounts of value but really enjoy the process instead of just being stressed by it all the time. And it's something I plan to write a book on at some point in the not too distant future. And so that's, that's kind of, I think, one key aspect of flourishing that's misunderstood is that productive work can really make you happy, but it has to be approached a certain way. And I think, you know, you, you, just, you study a lot of these kinds of things on the happiness hour, which is, you know, my favorite part of your show. And, I, and I'm very interested in these kinds of issues, and I, I integrate them all under human flourishing.
2: I love it. I, I love the name of the podcast. Is that how people find you? They just type in Human Flourishing Project?
4: Yeah, if you just type it in on Apple. I've I've been a little bit delinquent in new episodes, but I think there are 98 episodes, so you got so, plenty right, to catch right. up so
2: on. you could binge watch for a while. Yes, exactly. This uh, The book is Fossil Future, Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, etc. Unfortunately... Uh, China agrees with you. That's the irony. And so while we and and Germany and other countries start impoverishing ourselves and pushing ourselves into terrible inflation over energy, they're increasing their use of coal, for example. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, for sure. This is one of the big motivations for me to write the book is, is we're not going to pursue global net zero. That's not a realistic possibility. What is a realistic possibility is what I call unilateral disempowerment. So disempowerment means going from a state of empowerment, which means you have cost effective energy in modern life, to a state where you have less of it, uh, or none of it. So a place that has been disempowered as Venezuela, you know, primarily by socialism. And what's happening in the US is we're foregoing fossil fuels, we're trying to forego nuclear. To some extent, we have hostility toward hydro. We're trying to supposedly trying to replace them with unreliable solar and wind, but even those have opposition. And what's happening is so we are disempowering while China is empowering with an explicit goal of world domination by 2049 and mind you they control the entire supply chain for green energy which is something that people don't think about when they talk about our dependence on fossil fuels that's nothing compared to our dependence on china for solar panels wind turbines and batteries which even if they were cost effective which they're not for producing electricity on a large scale it would be they would be disastrously uh, dependent on china's whims and manipulation
2: wow i was thinking the other day about this if there were a, not even a military conflict, but an economic war with China. The amount that we are dependent upon China. I mean, somebody told me just recently we get our vitamin C from China. <laughs> so uh, y- your point is is not new to me, but I didn't realize even the the green world is dependent upon especially especially the especially the green world. But here's here's the kicker, especially the green world is dependent upon China, which is completely okay with being dependent on coal.
4: Yeah. And so that's part of the fallacy of green energy is it involves, you know, Chinese coal, Chinese slave labor, Chinese low environmental standards. And so it's part of the reason why I say it's not a serious attempt at energy. It's just a rationalization for people who have hostility toward energy in general, uh, energy in general and then human impact in general.
2: That's exactly right. So, explain this. I think you have alluded. I know you've alluded to it. Uh, so, I believe France is gets sixty percent of its energy from nuclear power. Electricity. Sorry,
4: electricity, not energy. Good. Just thank electricity, you. It's not electricity.
2: Energy. That. Thank you. Where does it get its energy from?
4: Well, oil. So I mean, it's it a lot where, of oil. Where is
2: it getting its oil from? That's what I meant.
4: Oh, I don't know exactly there where they're importing. Okay, it from, all right, but, fine. You know they banned fracking.
2: So they get six. They banned fracking. That's fascinating.
4: Coming up, there's a deep like hatred of humanity.
1: A few more minutes with Alex Epstein and fossil future. In the final segment of the town hall review with Hugh Hewitt, stay with it.
2: Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with the Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com.
1: Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. The contemporary effort to go green with renewable energy sources, of course, is not unique to the United States. Alex Epstein and Dennis Prager turned to Europe in their conversation on the book Fossil Future.
2: So 60% of the electricity of France is nuclear. Why did Germany destroy or abandon its nuclear power?
4: Well, I think largely because of this lie that unreliable solar and wind could rapidly replace reliable Uh, fossil fuels as well as nuclear and hydro.
2: Right. That's right. So they
4: felt like we can get some status in the wake Uh of Fukushima, which killed nobody by radiation by shutting down our nuclear plants.
2: Uh Uh-huh. So they really, they've bought the the nonsense that you could depend on, on solar and wind.
4: Yeah, although interestingly, you know, one of their major power sources that's unheralded is they use wood pellets, often coming, I think, from the U.S. At least Europe uses a lot of this to hit their their, uh, targets. Europe uses a lot of wood that we chop down using oil, transport using oil, and then they burn it with a lot of emissions, and they call it renewable and pretend it's solar and wind.
2: Would you say environmentalism, I mean, not the idea that we should be concerned with the environment, just environmentalism, is a secular religion?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's—I mean, I don't even think it deserves to be called secular, but I think it's a prim- primitive anti-human uh, religion. And and the concern with the environment, I think, is a vague way that they want us to think about it. It's really a belief belief that we should sacrifice to the non-human.
2: Which is nature.
4: The rest of nature, though. I think of we're the best part of nature. So it's really a hatred of the human part of nature.
2: So it's a fascinating thing about the left They. Most of these people are are overwhelmingly the the heads of the environmentalist uh, activist movements are white. They're generally rich. So they hate themselves for being white and they hate themselves for being human. There's something very sick going on.
4: It it is it is very sick. And, you know, Douglas Murray has this new book, The War on the West, which I thought was really good. And he really identifies how the hostility toward the West is not about the things they say because racism is much worse. Other places. Slavery was much worse. Other places. There's a deep like hatred of humanity. And I think a lot of it is envy driven. Some human beings who feel inferior like the idea, like ideas that make their superiors inferior.
2: That's the Israel test of George Gilder.
4: Hmm, interesting.
2: Yes, test yourself how you react to those who are more successful than you. Do you resent and hate them, or do you want to emulate them? To him, that is the ultimate human test. Thank
1: you for joining us for the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Catch up on earlier episodes at our website, townhallreview.com, and sign up for a daily dose of the best in talk radio. Special thanks to executive producer Russell Shubin, producers David Pushan, Michael Cook, Adam Gantner, Adam Ramsey, Jacob Ordunia, and Dwayne Patterson. Let me say thanks once again to our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for joining us.